And if you think that for the disciples and the friends of Jesus that they weren't experiencing this feeling, then you've read the story too many times. And you become immune to it. Because this experience rocked them. It shook them. See, the week before, they'd been walking with Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. They'd been laying down their coats in front of him as he came in on the donkey, and they were part of the crowd shouting and waving the palm branches. They shouted too, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The greeting of the king. And they had gone and sharpened their swords. And they had said, yeah, now's the time. We're going to overthrow the Romans. We've been waiting for this. The Messiah, the Savior, the King is here. It's time. And within a week, Jesus has been taken. He's been beaten and bloodied, unrecognizable, and dragged before all these different courts and accused, although innocent, all the charges just seem ridiculous. And people keep saying it over and over. This is ridiculous. But still, he's condemned to death on a cross. And the sky goes black and the earth shakes. And even the Romans who are there are shaken by it. And then Jesus dies. They see him dead. His lifeless corpse. They watch the spear pierce him. And his body taken down. And they are shaken. They don't even get his body. It goes to the Romans. His friends don't get it. It's someone else. It's Joseph of Arimathea. He gets to ask for the body and he gets to prepare it and put it in his tomb. And then it's put down under lock and key under the guard. The Roman guard comes because they're worried because Jesus said on the third day he would rise. And so they're worried that his friends are going to do this charade and they're going to, you know, oh, Jesus is alive. Look, Jesus is alive. And so they say, no, let's, let's guard the tomb. Make sure no one can take the body. And this is, they're left with this. And then suddenly on the third day, weird things start happening. They go to the tomb and the tomb is empty. And there's rumors of angels and some of them see the angels and they run back. We saw angels and they said he's alive. And people say, no, 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 you're crazy. You're, now you're hallucinating. And other people come back, no, no, we, we too, we saw the angels and there's no soldiers and the stone has been rolled away. And Mary comes back, she's the one, and she says, I saw him, I saw him alive. I thought he was the gardener, but then it was Jesus. And they say, we don't believe you. And then a few of them up in a locked room and they're up there. I don't know what they're doing, but they're up there together. And then suddenly Jesus appears in the room. And they say, they're freaked out. And Jesus is there and he says, I'm not a ghost. It's me, I'm alive. And then again, others of them said, I I won't believe it. Thomas, maybe you've heard of doubting Thomas. Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I can touch the holes in his hands. And the next time Thomas is in the locked room and Jesus appears again. And Thomas gets to put his hands in the holes in Jesus' hands. And he says, I believe. And then Peter goes fishing. That's the story we're going to read today. (laughs) What? You think that's a weird story to, to say, to tell on Easter Sunday? Well, it's in John chapter 21. This is the story we're going with. There's something here for us this morning. 
So this just happened. Thomas just had this experience. And then after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, so the same Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and the two and two other disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore and yet the disciples The disciples did not know that this was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, so that's John. That's what he calls himself, the disciple Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word. What a story. Jesus is alive to meet us where we are and call us into something better. Jesus is alive to meet us where we are and call us into something better. What happens when we catch nothing? When we catch nothing. This week, Miriam, I heard her crying in the other room. And I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not a chaser. So when kids go sulk in the other room, I don't, I don't like going and chasing after them. I'm like, oh, they'll figure it out and come back when they're ready. But this time I was, I was like, I think something happened. I'm not sure. And so I went and I saw her and she was in the other room. She was like, like, she's four. So I was like, okay, this looks like there's something going on. And so I went over and I said, Miriam, what's wrong? She said, oh, and she started crying into the pillow. And it was like the end of the world. And so I said, okay. And I kept trying to get her to talk. And I got her to laugh a little bit. And then finally, when she kind of stopped crying, I said, so Miriam, what's the matter? What was bothering you? And she looked blankly at me and said, I can't remember. (laughs) This is such a big deal. What do you do when when you're upset? Do you go in the other room and cry and then forget about it? I don't know. What, what do you do? What do I do? What do we do when we're stressed or when we're under it or we're at an impasse? And we've got all this stuff going on inside of us. What do we do? Some of us numb. We numb. We'll watch more TV or have another beer or play more video games. Or maybe it's a little more Facebook. Or maybe you plow through another Netflix series in one night. <laughs> or something like that. Or maybe some of us get busy. 
We decide we're going to busy it. We're going to take another project. We're going to take on more. Just don't stop. Just keep going. Just keep going. Go to the gym. Go to work. Go anywhere. Take on another commitment or more activities. We'll busy it away. I know for me, I like, when I get stressed and under it, I start doing the dishes. Which Lauren likes, I think. But. Or I start cleaning something. So I have something at the end I can see. I did this. Okay. I feel better. Peter? He goes fishing. He goes fishing. Why fishing? Why does he do this? We can only speculate because we can't ask him why he's going fishing in the middle of this moment and this situation and this time where all this stuff's happening. There's all this confusion. Maybe he's trying to keep busy while he's waiting. There's no Netflix for him, so he's going to go back to work. He's a fisherman, so he's going to do fisherman stuff. The smell of the sea, the pull of the nets, the feel of the boat. There's that reassuring feel and place, that um, familiar place with friends he trusts. He's going to go fishing and his trusted friends are going to go with him. This sounds like a great place. And then fishing is therapeutic, right? Isn't it? I don't know. I don't like fishing, but I've heard that's true. Any fishermen? Yeah. Okay. Is it therapeutic? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. So for some people, therapeutic, maybe for Peter. Maybe he's avoiding the upper rooms, though. He's been in a couple upper rooms now where Jesus has appeared, and maybe he's avoiding upper rooms because now he's in a boat on the lake. I wonder if that's true because it was Peter who denied Jesus. If you don't know that story, Jesus said to Peter, Peter said, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And Jesus said to Peter, you're going to actually deny me three times, and you're not going to follow me anywhere, and the the rooster's going to crow, and you'll know that you've denied me. And Peter says, no, 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 I'll go with you to death. They take you, they'll take me. And then sure enough, Jesus is taken and Peter's outside with the crowd and people say, hey, aren't you, uh, aren't you with him? And Peter says, no, never saw the guy. And then another girl says, your accent, you sound like one of those guys who's with Jesus. And he says, no, never knew him. And then again, and then the rooster crows. And actually one of the accounts says Jesus is in transit and he comes through the courtyard at that very moment And Peter shouts out, I never knew him. And he looks over and Jesus in transit looks over at him. And the rooster crows. And Peter weeps bitterly. I wonder, has he told anyone this story yet? I wouldn't have. I'd keep that on the down low for a long time. How do you recover from this? denying Jesus and Jesus sees you and Jesus is dead and then Jesus is alive. Can he make eye contact with Jesus in the room when Jesus appears and everyone's so excited and Peter's excited and then Peter's maybe a little bit also hesitant. Shame, like, shame is like this. It burns in our mind. It, it's like a weight on us. Shame. It's written on our face. And it's the voice that we hear over and over. You betrayed him. You've failed God. You've failed yourself. You're weak. You're a failure. And we carry it around with us. And then Peter's out there fishing and there aren't even any fish. I mean, come on. I like add insult to injury. Have you ever been doing what you thought you were really good at and then failed? It's one thing to fail when you're doing something you know you're not good at. And you're like, oh yeah, I know I can't do this. Ha 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 
And then you go to something, you're like, I'm awesome at this. Whoa. And then you fail. How does that feel? It's crushing. Isn't it? I'm a fisherman. I catch fish. It's what I do. I'm a student. I study. I achieve. I'm a musician. I'm an athlete. I'm a friend. I'm a husband. I'm a mom. I'm a son. I'm a wife. I'm a sister. I'm a moral person. I'm a Christian. And then one day, everything comes apart. And the nets are empty, and you catch nothing, and you realize you can't make fish appear. You can throw out the net, and you can be in the right place, but you can't make those fish appear. You can't do it. You can't actually do this. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is grace, that when your shame is great, when your nets are empty, there's nothing in them. And you catch nothing, and your strength is spent, and you've been up all night, and you feel the weight of it. And your best isn't good enough. That's when Jesus meets you with the breakfast you didn't cook and fish you didn't catch and a fire you didn't start. There's Jesus and he calls you his own. There's a story Timothy Paul Jones tells from the book Proof and it's about uh, a, a daughter that they adopted into their family. And this daughter, she was previously adopted already. And the family that she was a part of before, it didn't work out. And so they unadopted her. And she came into their family and she's eight years old. And she talked a lot about Disney World. Because the family that she'd been a part of had gone to Disney World a few times. But she had never gone. She had always stayed with a family friend when the family went to Disney World. And so they would come back and she would see the pictures and she would hear about the rides and she would hear about the parades and the characters and she never got to go. And she told them it was because of her behavior. She was badly behaved, she said. And so she wasn't allowed to go. So this father said, the next time I'm going on a speaking tour around Disney World, we're going to go on a trip to Disney World. And so he prepared this in his mind. And sure enough, there came the opportunity. And so they planned a family trip to go there, together to go to Disney World. And they started talking about it and getting excited about it. Now, this girl, her behavior just started tanking as soon as the trip was planned. I mean, she was doing things she didn't need to do wrong. Like she was stealing things she didn't need to steal. She was lying about things she didn't need to lie about. Her, just general mutiny all the time. And so the, the dad brings her in. He's going to talk to her about all this. And he sits her down and she looks at him and she says, you're not bringing me to Disney World, are you? And although he says, I was tempted to say, you better smarten up your behavior or you're not going. He said, no. And what he said was, are you a part of this family? She said, yes. And he said, then you're coming. We're not leaving you behind. And there are consequences for your behavior that we're going to deal with. Well, what's right and wrong, but that's a, that's a different thing. And her behavior didn't get better. It got worse still. As the day approached for them to go to Disney World, just worse and worse and worse, like crazy. 
And finally, they went to Disney World and they had this incredible day and she had this incredible day and was so exhausted by the end of it. And he brought her in and, you know, was putting her to bed and doing the nighttime prayers with her. And he said, hey, how was your first day at Disney World? And she looked at him and she said, I finally, I get it. I finally got to go to Disney World. And it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I'm good. It's because I'm yours. That's the story of grace. That's this story. Risen Jesus doesn't show up because our nets are full and we did it. We got a big catch and now Jesus is here. He shows up because we are his. We belong to him. Secondly, we recognize Jesus. There's a story of, um, I realize too that I, I tell jokes this way. I always introduce a joke this way. So this isn't a joke. This is a story. So I just, I want to make sure I say that. So there was an Irish couple celebrating, and you have Irish people in a story. It's like, it's a joke, right? So this is not a joke. It was a story. There's an Irish couple and they're celebrating their anniversary. And so they go to a really fancy restaurant in Dublin. And as they're there, they look over and there's Bono from U2. And they are big U2 fans. And so they are super pumped. There's Bono sitting a few tables over with a friend having dinner. And so they start talking about this and they're really excited. And should we go over and talk to him? Should we get a picture? Should we ask him? I don't know. This is like our chance. He's right there. And so after a little while of, you know, going back and forth on this, Bono gets up and looks like he's going to the bathroom or something. And so they get up and they go over to the friend and they say, hey, we see you're here with Bono. Do you think it would be okay if we took a picture with him or how would he feel about that? We don't want to ruin his dinner. And the guy was like, oh no, he, oh, he'd be fine with that. And so they, Bono comes back and so the, he get, they get an autograph and this guy starts taking some pictures for them. And it's really awesome. And so they go back to their table and they're just super pumped. And the evening ends and they're asked for their bill. And then the waiter comes and he says, your meal has been paid for. And they say, wow, really? This super nice restaurant. Like, uh, well, so was that, was that Bono? Bono paid for our meal? And the guy says, no, 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 it wasn't Bono. It was his friend, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> the guy taking the pictures for them. Thanks, Bruce. This happens a few times to Jesus, where he's somewhere and they don't recognize him. And so this, it goes on to the point where it becomes a little bit silly or ridiculous. It happens to Mary. She's there through tears at the grave, at the, at the tomb. And, you know, she's so confused and she hears these angels say, Jesus is alive and she, he's not there. And did someone take him? And there's these guys, they look like angels. Are they really angels? You know, and she's just confused and everyone's running away and running all over. And she just stays there and she's weeping and confused. And suddenly through her tears, this annoying gardener starts asking her intrusive questions. Questions like, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? And she's like, go away. Do you know where he is? Do you know where they put him? And then suddenly, the annoying, intrusive gardener says, Mary, it's Jesus. And she looks, oh, it's, it's you, Jesus. And she clings to him, and he, then he disappears. Or a couple is walking along the road. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're headed off. After all of this horrible stuff, and they're going along the road, and suddenly Jesus ambles up beside them, walking along the road with them. And they don't 
recognize him. And they say, he asks them some funny questions and he plays along. And they say, don't you know what's going on? And they have this whole long dialogue. And then the guy starts explaining things to them and helping them understand. And as they walk, they're like, wow, we really, this guy's amazing. Wow, we really like him. And they go along and they say, hey, why don't you stay with us for dinner? And he comes in and when he breaks the bread, they recognize him. It's Jesus. (gasps) Jesus. And all this time we were with you on the road. We didn't recognize you. And so I don't know if that 100 yards from the boat to the shore is 100 yards where they can't recognize him. Is that? Who is that guy over there? He sure talks like Jesus. Or if it's just too far they can't see, I don't know. But I do know that maybe it's too ordinary for them to recognize. Like garden gravesides and dusty roads. Like not a place they're looking for Jesus. Because if I was inventing a story about the risen Jesus meeting me, it wouldn't be with him serving me breakfast. That wouldn't be the story I'd make up. Yeah, and then the risen Jesus appeared and he made me eggs and toast. It was great. It's a weird story. Because it's so strange. But Jesus is in the everyday Eugene Peterson says, the only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. The house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you've been given, the weather conditions that prevail at this very moment. This is it. This is what you've got. This is where you are. And so if you think Jesus is off somewhere holy, somewhere perfect, some church building somewhere, wouldn't be in a cafeteria like this. We're invited to respond to Jesus in everyday moments. Hey, cast your nets to the right. What? It's just so ordinary. It's such a little thing. It's such a work thing, a human thing. And yet, the nets fill with fish. And there's a miraculous moment in the ordinary. Everyone's stunned. They all stand there. They're in the boat. They throw the net to the side. It fills with fish, and they're stunned. They're all surprised, standing there. (gasps) Where are the fish coming from? And John, it's John who looks over, and he says, I know this. This happened before. It's Jesus. Hey. Hey. He turns to Peter. Hey, it's Jesus. Do you know it's Jesus? They're all looking at the fish. It's Jesus over there. You need one of those people with you when you're going somewhere and you, you need someone spiritual. That's what I'm always trying to do. I'm trying to, like, whenever I invite people to go somewhere, I'm like, I need someone spiritual to be in the group so that if Jesus does something, they'll recognize him for me and they'll point him out. Hey, that's Jesus doing that. Oh, great. I'm glad. That's why I invite Brian Fetish in places because he's really spiritual. And he recognizes these things. And so I was like, oh, great. Oh, thank you, Brian. I'm glad someone could do that. And Peter... Peter doesn't recognize Jesus, but he's the one who jumps in after him. It's Peter, impulsive Peter, putting on his clothes to jump in the water. A little bit strange in my mind, but forget the fish. Who cares about the fish? I just want to be near Jesus. And there's Thomas, the doubter, and there's Nathaniel, and there's James and John, and there's the two extra disciples. They don't get mention of their names. Hate to be those guys. None of them jump in. Peter, Peter jumps in. And I wonder at what point as he's swimming toward Jesus, does he feel that shame again, maybe? Or, oh, oh yeah, there's this thing we haven't talked about. 
but he swims to shore and he's there to greet Jesus. The floundering, desperate betrayer, (laughs) denier, spontaneously responding to Jesus. And I think when you see Jesus, when you recognize him in whatever moment, I think you either want to tell someone, hey, it's Jesus, or you want to jump in and get closer to him. You want to move in proximity to where he is. That's how we respond. I I don't know if you know Ed Broders, but um, he gave his baptism testimony last year in June at at his baptism. And he shared about how he'd lived his whole life believing in God. But it wasn't until more recently that he experienced this move from something that seemed more like religion to something that seemed more like a relationship. That God wanted relationship. And then even here at Jubilee, he, said, he would say, it took him quite a while before he realized, wow, I really need Jesus. I really need Jesus. And um, the other night, a community group, Ed said, he can't read through the crucifixion story anymore without feeling emotion. Because there's something now connected to it. It's the Jesus he loves. And that's how it is when we are changed by Jesus, when we experience that moment of recognizing him and who he is. We might do crazy things, like swim in our clothes, to shore. Or we might lift our hands in worship, which maybe seems crazy to some of you. You might be like, wow, what is with the people lifting up their hands? Or dancing the jig, or whatever it is. We might do crazy things. We might give away money, or time, or things. We might do something really crazy like love our enemies or be kind to those who hate us. It says in Colossians chapter 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony. And thirdly, we remember mission. If you were with us at the very beginning, one of our very first sermons was Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, there's a story that's very similar to this story. And it was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't have any disciples yet, but he'd done a few healings. And so there was a crowd that was forming. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And so Jesus is speaking to the crowd and it gets bigger and bigger. And so he decides to amplify his voice. He's going to go out on the boat and the water will amplify his voice. And so he says to the boat near him, hey, can I go on your boat? And he's a guy who's boated it says, sure, yeah, come on. And we'll push out a little bit into the water. And then as Jesus is talking, people can hear him. Whose boat is it? It's Peter's boat. Peter's in the boat with a front row seat as Jesus is talking to everyone. And then partway through the message, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Hey, cast your net into the water, into the deep. And Peter's like, "Uh, I'm a fisherman. We fished all night. There's no fish here. We fished it out. There's nothing here. But you're the preacher. I'm the fisherman. I know you don't know, but okay, I'll still do it. Because you're holy, preacher man. And he throws out his net. 
and the net fills with fish. So many fish, they have to call another boat. And as they're loading all the fish into the boats, the boats start to sink. They're so full of fish. And Peter falls down at Jesus' feet at this miracle. And he says, I am unworthy. Go, be, go away from me. And Jesus says, will you come and follow me? <laughs> hey, come and follow me. And Peter and the other fishermen there say, yes, we'll do it. And they go and they leave their stuff and they follow Jesus. They become his disciples. Now, Peter is convinced Jesus is worth following. And when Jesus does this and invites them to follow him, Matthew and Mark list this. This is the, the words Jesus says when he invites them. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They're fishermen. And he says, I will make you fishers of men, of people. Now, at that point, Peter's not a disciple. He's not really, he's not anything. He's just a fisherman. He's like a failed out theologian, if he would be one. He, he didn't even get that far into, he had to go into his trade, and he's a fisherman. He's not in the, the theological school somewhere. He's a fisherman. And he's going to be a disciple. Jesus is going to walk with him for three years. And Peter will rebuke Jesus. And he will get rebuked by Jesus. And he'll argue about who's the greatest. Peter thinks he's the greatest. And he's going to refuse to let Jesus wash his feet. There's a whole scene there. And he's going to deny Jesus three times and weep bitterly. Doesn't sound like a great disciple. But Jesus promised Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Hebrews chapter 12 says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. It's Jesus, the perfecter, the one who's going to make it right. Jesus promises to do it. Like he promised he'd send his spirit to all these people who are waiting as Jesus is risen. Jesus, I'm sending my spirit and then nothing happens. They're just waiting and they wait and they wait. But Jesus is faithful to finish what he starts. He's not just leaving them on their own. He's going to send his spirit. If you know the story we just read, you know that the next story after it is that they finish breakfast and then Peter and Jesus go for a walk down the beach. And as they're walking down the beach, John follows along behind. He's going to listen in. Like John, you know, what a guy. Sunday school superstar. And... They go down the beach and Jesus turns to Peter and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know I love you. This is the hard conversation, okay? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. And then they keep walking and Peter's like, okay. And then he's waiting for it. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I just said that. I do love you. I do. Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. And then they keep walking. And a little bit further, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And maybe by then Peter knew, oh, three, three for three. Do you love me? Peter says, yeah. Jesus, I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Live the mission, Peter. We don't have time for shame. We don't have time for you to wallow. Live the mission, Peter. I have something for you to do, something better than what you're doing. This is the picture. In another two chapters from our story, Peter's going to preach to a crowd of thousands, and thousands of people will get saved. They'll give their lives, turn their lives to Jesus. 
I love that in this story, though, Jesus brings the food, but he doesn't bring enough. Do you notice that? Jesus, he's got a fire, and he's got some bread, and he's got fish. It says fish, maybe one or two, I don't know, but not enough because he asked them to give him more. They'll need more if they're going to have a hearty breakfast for all the seven guys and Jesus. Now, maybe you've heard another story where Jesus fed 5,000 people. He did it. They were all there together, thousands of people. And Jesus said, hey, we should feed all these people. And the disciples said, what are you, crazy? We can't feed all these people. It costs so much money. Jesus says, well, what do we have? And they say, well, we got this kid here, and he's got five loaves and two fish. Like, it's not going to go very far. You could eat it, Jesus. We could eat this. And Jesus says, okay, that's enough. And he takes the bread and breaks it and the fish, and he gives thanks. And then they start giving it out and giving it out and giving it out and giving it out, and it doesn't stop. And when they collect the leftovers, there's 12 baskets of leftover fish and bread. It's been multiplied. And Jesus is making breakfast and he's got not enough fish? Just multiply, Jesus. Why wouldn't you do that? He wants the fish they caught too. He says, I have some fish. I want the fish you caught. How do you think God feels when you and I go around complaining or, oh, woe is me. I can't, I can't do what God wants me to do. I'm so horrible. I'm so awful. God is so displeased. I'm sure he's so displeased. And God's saying, bring me the fish that you just caught with my power. My fish jumped into your boat. Bring those fish. And we're included in the mission of God. We're included. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is what we say with Jubilee. Why are we here? Why don't we just get raptured up to heaven? When we get saved. Why, why do we gather here? Why are we at church? The answer is because we want more people to encounter Jesus. And that's why we're here. Jeff Vanderselt says, God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. And we've been called to participate. To be part of what he's doing. To impact our community and the world. To share and show God's love. And so I don't believe there's an exemption for failures. There's not an opt-out for the sinner tax collector or the dumbed-down plan for the one who failed seminary or the one who denied him three times. There's just, come and live the mission. Follow me. Because you didn't qualify yourself, and I didn't qualify myself. Jesus qualified us. That's the story of the cross and the resurrection. When living Jesus commissions his church, he sends us as we are by his spirit to go and be something we could never be on our own. Jesus is alive to meet us where we are and to call us into something better. Jesus is alive to come and find us. He does that where we are, in the the places we are. They don't seem like spiritual places. They seem like ordinary places. And Jesus comes and he finds us and he meets us and he encounters us. And when we recognize him, we find him, oh, it's you. You've been here all along, working and doing things and reaching my heart. Then we want to tell people, hey, Jesus is here. Jesus has been here. I didn't even know he was working. Or we want to jump in and get close to him. When we encounter Jesus and we experience his love, I don't think we can help but respond 
to the mission, which is to go out and share his love. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are alive, that um, the Bible says that you, you went back up to heaven and you're sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm grateful that you didn't um, leave your disciples and us to just try to figure this out on our own. How are we going to follow you? How are we going to love people? How are we going to do any of this? Because so often we feel like our nets are empty. I feel like my nets are empty. And so I'm grateful that you sent your spirit. You said, I'm going to fill you with my spirit, my power, to go and to do everything that you would call us to do. And that even in this story, as the nets fill with fish, you want those fish. You're using those fish. You're using us and the gifts we have and the things you've put in us to reach the world. So Lord, would you do that in us? Would you help us to see you, to recognize you, and to respond to you? Thank you, Jesus. Amen.